Heavenly Father, we pray that you would indeed be telling us tonight the old, old story of Jesus and his love for us. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus tonight in Nehemiah. And we pray that we would know him and know him afresh. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning uh, at our family service, we had a baptism. Uh, And there's a moment in the the baptism service, not long before the baby is baptised, which takes the form of six questions and answers the the prayer book that calls that part of the service the decision. And it's the moment where the candidate, if they're of age, or the baby's parents and godparents, publicly declare that they have decided to follow Jesus. The six questions are made up of two sets of three questions. The first set Ask this, do you reject the devil and all proud rebellion against God? Do you renounce the deceit and corruption of evil? Do you repent of the sins that separate us from God and neighbour? And then the second set of questions, that they're different. They ask, do you turn to Christ as saviour? Do you submit to Christ as Lord? Do you come to Christ? The way, the truth, and the life. The first set of questions are all our words. Rejecting the devil, renouncing evil, and repenting of sin. They're all about turning away from sin. Then the second set are all in relation to Christ Jesus himself. Turning to him, submitting to him. And coming to him. The two sets of questions together show us what confession and repentance is all about. Turning away from the wrong things that we've done. And turning to Jesus who is our saviour. The two parts must come together. Turning away and then turning towards. And that's where we find ourselves tonight in Nehemiah chapter 10. Last time we were with Nehemiah, it it seems a while ago, it was probably three weeks ago maybe, uh, we listened in uh, to their confession as they said sorry to God. And through chapter 9, if you were with us, uh, we had the retelling of Israel's history, how they kept turning away from God time and time and time again. But as well as telling the story of how Israel had turned away from God, chapter 9 was also the people turning away from their turning away from God, if that makes sense. They were saying sorry. They were turning away from their nation's sin. And this was in response to them hearing and understanding and starting to obey God's word in chapter 8. The three chapters flow through one another. Well, as we'll see tonight, chapter 10 completes chapter 9. 
If chapter 9 is about the people turning from their sin, then chapter 10 is about them turning to God. And we see how serious they are about their turning to God in the words which uh, we read at the start of the reading uh, in our chapter 9, but in the Hebrew they're at the start of chapter 10. Look at it with me, page 495, in case you've closed your Bible. It says, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. They're serious about their commitment. So they're making it public, they're putting it in writing, and they're affixing their seals to it. They're all signing on the dotted line to show that they agree to it. And we can see from that big long list of names, once again, I'm regretting preaching Nehemiah for the names, but I'm enjoying it otherwise. But as you can see, Nehemiah the governor, and then 57 other individual unpronounceable names of priests, Levites, and leaders of the people are found in those first 30 verses. Sorry, first 27 verses. Now maybe you're, maybe you're fed up with Brexit already, and I'm sorry for mentioning it. But at the heart of the ongoing dispute at the moment is the matter of the withdrawal agreement. And the problem is that no one has agreed to it. Well, the EU, they have agreed to it. And Theresa May, the Prime Minister, has agreed to it. But the Parliament hasn't agreed to it. And so we don't actually have an agreement at the minute. We have a withdrawal disagreement and a threat of no deal. But here we see that it isn't just the higher-ups who have agreed this agreement among themselves. In verse 28 at the bottom of the page, we see that it's a unanimous agreement. Everyone is on board. It says the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighbouring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand. All these now join their brothers the nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God. Everyone is in on this. To do so, they have separated themselves from the neighbouring peoples. This isn't racist it's a commitment to maintaining the purity of their religion with mixing comes compromise so they have separated themselves from uh, the neighbouring peoples for the sake of the law of God they're holding to God's word with no compromise and they're so dedicated that they bind themselves, uh, where is it, Uh, verse 29, uh, with a curse and an oath. They are aware of the negative consequences of failing to do this. 
They're determined to keep their agreement of turning from sin and turning to God. So what did their turning to God look like? Well, we see that in the rest of the passage under seven paragraphs of their commitments. But before we look at them, we need to remember that our own discipleship, our own turning towards God may not look exactly like this in every detail. We need to remember the the Bible timeline, uh, that they're in the Old Testament, they're in the Old Covenant, that they're still waiting for Messiah King to come, whereas we're in the New Covenant. And so it'll look slightly different, perhaps. So we might not do precisely what they did in every detail, but we'll see the principles that they're following as they turn to their God. The first is there in verse 30. It's building on that idea of separation by not giving their their daughters in marriage to the neighbouring peoples or taking daughters from the neighbouring peoples for their sons. They're pledging to not be unequally yoked as the New Testament would put it where Christians, where believers marry non-Christians, non-believers it normally leads to all sorts of troubles and difficulties and so they are living separated lives distinct and different the second principle is there in verse 31 that of the Sabbath They pledge that they'll not buy merchandise or grain from the neighbouring peoples on the Sabbath day or on any holy day. And they'll observe every seventh year by not working the land and by cancelling all debts. They're taking what God says seriously. And you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, that would be nice. All debts cancelled every seven years. But they're serious about this. Because God has said it in the Old Testament. Thirdly, verse 32, they will give towards the service of the house of their God. Exodus 30 had brought in a census tax of half a shekel. Here, possibly because of hard economic times, they pledged a third of a shekel. About an eighth of an ounce of silver. And we see the reason for the money in the rest of those verses there. For the bread set out on the table. For the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings. For the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festivals and appointed feasts. For the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. And for all the duties of the house of our God. They're giving in order to keep the house of God running. They're committed to the worship. Building on that, fourthly, verse 34, that they have cast lots, they have drawn up a rota for bringing a contribution of wood for the altar. So that the fire in the place of sacrifice, so that the fire constantly burns. 
so that the fire doesn't go out, so that there's always a place for making sacrifice. Fifthly, in verse 35, they have assumed responsibility to bring the first fruits of their crops and fruit. This is the gift of the very first ripened crops, giving them back to the God who gave them in the first place as a sign and promise of the rest of the harvest to come. They give God the best, not the rest, not what's left over. Sixthly, they will also bring their firstborn sons and the firstborn of their cattle, herds and flocks to devote them to God. If you remember back in Exodus in Egypt, it was the firstborn sons who had been saved through the death of the Passover lamb. And so they belonged to God. They could be redeemed at a price. Again, acknowledging that all we have comes from God and belongs to God. The seventh and final principle there is that they will bring the first of their produce and also a tithe of their crops to the Levites. Now that word tithe, we maybe don't hear it very often or use it very often. But that tithe is a tenth, 10% of what they've received from God given back to him. And in verse 38, we see that the Levites tithe their tithes. They bring a tenth of the tithes that they receive and put them in the storerooms of the treasury. For the Old Testament believers, the tithe was at the basic amount that they were expected to give. And then other offerings and gifts were made on top of that, alongside that. And so um, maybe you have heard uh, Church of Ireland ministers sometimes, uh, maybe some of the older ones who would say, you know, at this point we'll receive your tithes and offerings. And that's uh, what they're uh, getting at here. So what might we take from these principles in this Jerusalem agreement. They are dedicated to being devoted to the Lord in purity, in keeping one day in seven special for God and for his worship, and in giving to God's house and God's work, in tithes and in other offerings. I wonder could God be saying something to us in these principles maybe not the specifics of how they worked it out but could God be saying something to us about how we give about how we serve the summary of this agreement is found in the very last line of the chapter it summarizes all that that we've seen in the chapter and, and it says this, we will not neglect the house of our God. The house of God was the temple, the place where God dwelt among them, where they could meet with God and worship him. But by the time of Jesus, the, the temple was overrun with merchants and money changers. 
imagine if you were coming in tonight and Carl had set up a little stall and there were you know, animals running around and you couldn't really get in. Well, that wouldn't be right, would it? And yet that's what had happened here in the temple. There wasn't any room for people from the nations to come and worship the one true God. In the court of the Gentiles, it was all market stalls. And so Jesus cleared the temple. A zeal for God's house consumed him. He was challenged as to his authority to do all this. And do you remember what he says? Destroy this temple. And in three days, sorry, and I will raise it again in three days. As John explains as he writes his gospel, the temple that he's speaking of is his body. His body was destroyed, broken, and his blood shed on the cross. But three days later, he raised it again to show that he is indeed the Lord God, the Lord of the temple. Jesus himself is our temple. Jesus is the place where we meet with God. His body is the temple. Not a, not a building of bricks and mortar. Not even this building, as special as it is to us. But the temple is his people. You and me, as we follow him together. So what will it mean for us to not neglect the house of our God? It will mean that we show up for one another to, to be together, dedicated to meeting together. As Hebrews chapter 10 says, do not neglect uh, the habit of meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It will mean... Uh, to be uh, devoted to the house of our God, it will mean that we use our gifts and our talents to build one another up through encouragement and support and sharing. And it will mean that we will give some of what God has given us for his service in ministry here and in mission around the world. It will mean that we no longer live for ourselves, but for God and for one another as we follow the Lord whose body was broken for us. The Lord who perfectly obeyed the old covenant. The Lord who took the curse of the law upon himself. And instituted in his blood the new covenant that makes us his brothers and sisters. That makes us his temple. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that the Lord Jesus has perfectly fulfilled your law's demands. We thank you that we have this new covenant in his blood, that we can call you our Father. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be devoted to you and to your body. And we ask this in Jesus' name.